from the book of Isaiah, chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit that that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Church, it is my joy to invite you through the prophet Isaiah to put on a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. It's not a physical garment. Uh, we don't really dress up here at this church. You're lucky if I wear a button down, right? That's about as deep as we get with that. A garment of praise is a spiritual awareness, a state of focus on the Lord in place of a faint spirit. Rise up wherever you are. Sing with us. Put on a garment of praise this week in Jesus' name. Let's sing.
just one name over all. Jesus reigns, I know, I know. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Yes, yeah. There is a King of glory, there is a God who saves, one who is strong and mighty, freedom is in his name. Open the gates of heaven, lift up a shout of praise. There is a lion roaring, Jesus the King of glory. There is a lion roaring, Jesus the King of glory.
a blessing over our church just watching this online I pray that we would continue to put on garments of praise day in and day out I pray that our faint spirit would pass away I pray that you draw near to us wherever we are we're watching this out of time out of place but your spirit is near Lord, we greet you in garments and robes of righteousness and praise. We're going to sing this one more time. Your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips. Your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips. Your praise will ever be on my Ever be on my lips, your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips. Okay, well, hello everybody. Welcome to ABF Online. It's been a few weeks since I've been here with you. So glad to see you today. 
I know that people are watching this, not just here in California, but I know we have friends watching from Washington and Texas and all over the country. So welcome, no matter where you're watching us today. Well, there's some things that we should be reminded of. You know, we always want to pray for you. And so that text deal at 97,097,000, we get those every week. And it's such a blessing for you to share with us how we could be praying for you. Now, there's some things that uh, as you all are starting to come back, you should be aware of. Uh, our Women's Courtyard Gathering is on Monday, May 24th. Monday, May 24th. And I think you know that uh, that's a special time at 6.30 in the courtyard. All of you ladies come out. You're going to have a blast as you join Adrian for that. Then online, uh, there are some things you should be registering for. Number one is Camp ABF, and you know that. It's on June 21st, the 25th. Get your kiddos registered, but we need high school students and adults who would like to volunteer during that week. We expect to have a sold-out Camp ABF, and so we need some volunteer help as well in crafts, in games, in teaching, all the above. And then our 8th Annual ABF Golf Classic on July 12th, and that's at Wood Ranch Country Club. It's uh, open and online for you to register your foursomes, even as you listen to this. We'd love to have you at that tournament. They'll, that's open to men and women on July 12th. And then because we're back on campus and we are growing like a weed, literally, there are so many needs to fill, uh, especially in a couple areas. Number one, we are desperate for help in the nursery. Let me say that one more time. We are desperate for uh, the nursery help because there are so many kids. Uh, you'll see on this coming Sunday, uh, we're doing a baby dedication, and I think we have like 18 kids being dedicated. Uh, we also need some help in the tech area. All this stuff that you see online just doesn't happen by chance. There's a ton of work being done behind the scenes, but we also now need people here on Sunday mornings to help us with that. So if you'd like to get plugged in, just email us at Info at agurabible.org, info at agurabible.org, and uh, we'll plug you in. And the last area we need some help in is those of you who might want to help launch a life group. And so if you would like to do that, uh, contact me as well. I think that's most of what uh, we want to talk about uh, today. But I also want to just remind you, we're so grateful for your consistent giving, whether you give online or you mail your check in the mail or uh, as some of you have come back in recent weeks, even dropping it off here at the church. And so, so we're so glad you're listening to us again this weekend. And now we continue our study in First Thessalonians. And uh, welcome, Pastor Scott. In fact, stand up from your couch right now. Stand up and let's hear it for Pastor Scott. Yeah, let's do it. Well, thank you, John, for quite the introduction, and thank you, worship team, as usual, for leading us. Hopefully, you are continue to be blessed by these online services, and as you know, we're working our way through the book of uh, 1 Thessalonians, and so I want to invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians 4. We're going to be looking at the first 12 verses, and I've entitled this message, Eager to Grow. It made me think about when we were growing up, maybe you can remember this too, that you're so excited to get older, you'd actually, when somebody would ask you your age, you would share half birthdays with you. You'd mention, so how old are you? Well, I'm 14 and a half, but I'm going to be 15 in June. That was part of the vocabulary when you're growing up because you're so anxious to grow up. 
then something happened along the way where you no longer are too concerned about that. I know at my age, I'm no longer sharing the half years with anyone. In fact, I'm more prone to actually uh, forget how old I am. Anybody else do this where you actually have to do the math? Sometimes I'm like, 1973, count backwards. I was laughing about this with Adrian. I spent about half a year telling people I was 47 when I was still 46. So now that I am 47, I feel like I'm uh, getting to do that year a second time. But the whole idea, the reason I bring that up and the title that we have for this passage is because really the idea that is pushed throughout Scripture is that we're supposed to, as a follower of Jesus Christ, to be eager to be growing in our faith. That should be on our, the forefront of our mind. It should get our attention and our focus. And that's what he points at here in our text. Truth is, this takes effort. It's more natural for us to slip into kind of the humdrum of the Christian life and to just get comfortable with really minimal to no thought about spiritual growth. You show up at church and it's just kind of, here we are singing the songs. If we're honest with ourselves, not really even stopping to think about what we're saying to Almighty God. Or the message starts and you're listening to me talk and you're kind of zoning out until I tell a somewhat interesting story. And otherwise, there's no thought as to, hey, how am I going to take this and apply it to my life? This is the caution and the tendency that Paul is aware of, even with this young church there in Thessalonica. If we're not careful, we can get to a place where we're just kind of settled in. And so he's trying to stir the pot to move us back towards a, an excitement where there's an eagerness to keep growing in our faith. Let me pray towards that end before we dive into this text. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this chance to gather around your word just on a weekly basis. And I pray that this would be a spiritual food for everyone that's listening, that you'd be glorified through our time spent here, that you'd be, that you'd be moving and working. And this whole idea of eagerness, maybe for some of us that have gotten into some complacency, would be elevated. That you would stir, that you would move, that your spirit would nudge us, that we wouldn't just get into operating just as normal and not giving any of this thought. God, we ask that you do what only you can do through the study of your word. In Jesus Christ's name, I pray. Amen. So as a reminder of where we're at in the book of Thessalonians, basically the book is broken down where the first part is just packed with encouragement. Then the second part, it's not that it's not encouraging, but it moves towards a little bit more of an instructional piece where Timothy has reported back to Paul what's been going on in the church of Thessalonica and pointed out maybe some areas of concern that need to be addressed. And so in our text today, he's addressing actually some of those concerns. Hopefully you'll see it elevated as we read through it. Starting in verse 1, chapter 4, says this, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instruction we gave you through the Lord Jesus. If we're going to be honest with ourselves, my question for you is how often do you give thought as to whether your moment-by-moment -moment actions are pleasing to the Lord? 
Do you ask yourself that question at any point throughout the day? Do you ask, well, how does God, how does God feel about my attitude right now? How does he feel about my response to this situation? How does he feel about my, my tone or the language that I used or the joke that I laughed about? How does he respond? How, is, he, is he blessed? Is it, is it pleasing to him? I think that's uh, intended to be something that's constantly on our mind. That's what he's pointing to, is that you ought to walk in a way that's pleasing to God. Remember just this last week, my, uh, one of my kids had gotten into a little bit of uh, trouble and done something uh, not so smart. And my wife was talking to me about, man, make sure you don't come down too hard on them. Because I just preached on not exasperating your children. But I remember it was a real tug of war and I was just seeking the Lord. God, what do you, how do you want me to approach this? How do you want me to, how do you want me to handle this? But it makes me sad that that kind of thought process takes my wife's nudging and prodding to get me where I'm actually considering that. He sees this in this early church and he's celebrating. He's saying, you're doing that. But notice what he says, the intention, the expectation in the Christian life is that you do so more and more. It shouldn't just be on the radar in a distance. It should be something that we're practicing on a day-to-day basis, asking the question, is this pleasing to God? How would he respond if you're standing here right with us now? For a while, there's the trend of that, what would Jesus do bracelets? And really, this is a similar idea as what actually is pleasing to God? Notice what he says there, what is pleasing. He says, for you know what instruction we gave you through the Lord Jesus. In other words, you know what is pleasing to God. We've identified it to you through the Lord Jesus. We've explained it to you. A lot of times we get excited about learning new information, but I find the more I study God's word or the more I consider my own spiritual life, it's more about doing what I already know. He's saying to them, you know what the instruction is. Now it's a matter of doing it more and more. The longer we walk with Christ, that should be more and more at the forefront of our mind. Continuing to explain this in verse three, he says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. We often wish that we, uh, in certain situations, that we knew what God's will or his plan was in our life. Sometimes we're going through a a tough choice and a uh, kind of a crossroads, and we're like, man, I just wish God would tell me what his will is as it relates to this subject. Who should I marry? Maybe what house I'm buying, what business transaction I should be a part of, whatever that question is. Well, this is an area that we see here in the text that we're not left to wonder what God's will or plan is. What does he tell us his will is? You see it there in the text. His will is our sanctification. 
Now, I know in church you end up hearing a lot of words that sound big and kind of not necessarily what you use in typical uh, daily speak with someone else, but sanctification is an important for one for us to understand. I like this definition. I, it didn't originate with me. I'm not sure who it started with. Sanctification is the lifelong process where the Holy Spirit progressively matches our behavior to the righteousness we have in Christ. You see, when we've been washed of our sins, when we're in God, as is described in this text, we've been set free from our sin. We've been washed clean. But there's a, a process of getting our behavior to line up, as that definition says, in order for it to match the righteousness that we have in Christ. And that's really a, a lifelong thing. And when he's considering that end goal of sanctification, the very first topic, do you see it in the text? The very first topic that he feels compelled to share with this young church has to do with sexual, per, sexual purity. This is the, what he believed these believers needed to hear about more than anything else. And if you're familiar with the time and age, it really paralleled a lot with our current culture and our current situation where these new young believers had a lot of old habits to break. They had a, a lot of, of patterns in their life that needed to be redirected. They were fighting cultural temptation left and right. It's reading a little bit about Thessalonica this past week, and as I think I've mentioned before in this series, that one of the gods or goddesses that they worshipped was named Aphrodite, who was really known for being the, the symbol for complete sexual license. In other words, do whatever feels good. If it feels good, do it, similar to today. Men could even go in the temples to worship Aphrodite and be with prostitutes as part of the worship experience. And it wasn't even something that was frowned upon. In fact, it was celebrated. So as they're receiving this information from Paul, this was, not, this was not something that was cultural. This was a complete pushback. They really had no public opinion that discouraged sexual immorality. So for them, he's setting a new direction, a, a new course, if you will. It's a very countercultural thing, both then and now. The more you dive into it in the study of this topic in Scripture, you come to realize that it refers to both thought and action. So often it starts in the thought life and that it is actually plays out in action, but he's calling them out in this similar to what Jesus told them. This idea that even a lustful thought towards a woman is considered adultery. So for us, when we're thinking through practically what does sexual immorality look like, it's a broad description that really covers any form of illegitimate sexual practices, whether it's the most common, whether it's sex, just sex outside of marriage, whether it's the uh, perversion of that with homosexuality, whether it's the more mental game with, with pornography that's viewed, whether it's the choice of entertainment that we allow to enter into our minds, whether it's just looking at the opposite sex with the sexual mindset. All of these things, is he saying, man, you need to abstain. You need to pull away from all of that. That's not what God's intent is. And if you want to be sanctified or moving to be more and more like Jesus Christ, this has to be a consideration. He calls us to have self-control in the, these areas. You must be in control of your body 
it should not be in control of you. Find it interesting what he tells us there. He says, when you transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. We have to understand that some of our decisions sexually actually end up damaging not just ourselves, but those around us. He describes it as a transgression. In other words, to sin against or take advantage of is the idea there. He's calling them out on this and calling them to something different. It's not something that's harmless. It's not something that's amoral. It's something that has the potential to cause extreme damage. Most of us can bring to mind somebody that's been hurt because of some kind of sexual misconduct. We so often, unfortunately, buy into the lie of, well, as long as they're consenting adults or as long as they're in love, it's okay. But that's not at all pictured here in the text Here, what instead we're told, what does it say is the Lord's response to it? It says, the Lord is an avenger in all these things. This is something that comes up fairly often in Scripture as I study it. Maybe you hear me describe it. A piece of God's character that we so often would prefer to ignore. The idea that he disciplines the ones that he loves. He disciplines them. Whether it's the discipline of just letting the ramifications of their actions, the, 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 uh, the, the wake of, of damaged relationships, whether it's some sickness, whether it's a, something transmitted, there, there's so many potential consequences to our sexual sin. Scripture even goes a, a, as far as saying that it may even lead to people falling asleep early or dying early. This idea is something in scripture that he points to as a consequence. In Romans 1, it talks about maybe one of the greatest consequences that he turns us over to our sin. There's a release. In other words, if that's where you want to go, good luck with that. It leads to a debased mind, it describes in Romans 1. Things that it's hard to come back from. But Paul's telling them something. It's not just his opinion. He makes sure that they're clear on that. Whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. Not man, but God. This is a calling in our lives, and it's the very first thing he addresses when he's talking about sanctification. If you're wondering why there's no spiritual progress in your life, this might be the very best place to start, assessing how you're doing in that particular area. Encouraging thing, because sometimes you can be like, well, is he just pointing out something that mere mortals can't do anything about, something that's helpless from our perspective? But what we see there in the text is all the reminder of who he's left us with. He's left us with the Holy Spirit as our helper. And what does that look like? The Holy Spirit, so often, a lot of times, the Holy Spirit is the one that's sounding the alarm. Stop that. Don't look at that. Step away. Stop the conversation. Don't look back. And then it's our job to respond to his nudging. And the Holy Spirit not only points us towards it, he also, if we lean into it, empowers us to resist. We're told to resist temptation. The enemy will flee from us. That's the picture here as the opportunity to have, to overcome sexual temptation. Continues in the text, Moving on to kind of the the opposite side of this perversion. Verse 9, he says, Now concerning brotherly love, kind of a hard uh, turn there, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. 
for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Basically, in contrast to lust, Paul now turns to talking about brotherly love. If you think about it, there's often confusion between the two in our current world. People mistake lust and love, and there's a, uh, the, but here's the, the big idea is sexual sin, when it's outside of the context of marriage as God has designed it, is really self-centered and selfish in nature. It's using somebody else, it's, it's taking advantage of somebody else to fulfill your personal desires. The opposite of what he's, is what he's calling them to, brotherly love. Do you see the difference between the two? Brotherly love is the alternative where you elevate someone else's needs above your own, not putting yourself first. That's what he's calling them to, a life uncommon, different than the world around them. Here's the, the alternative, though, is something that he was saying they're doing pretty well at. Do you see it there in the text? He says, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. In other words, they don't have to hear about it because he's giving them a good grade on this brotherly love thing. My question for us present day in our church, all of this is about trying to translate it to our current circumstances. That's the grade that he gives this young church. My question for us is what grade would he give you? What grade would he give me on brotherly love? This idea of brotherly love is, is described is it something that was taught from them, uh, from God, from God? What's the demonstration of brotherly love? We see it in John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son for us. That's the picture, self-sacrifice. So how are we doing in this? He tells us that we should be doing this more and more. We should be able to look at our life and be like, you know what? Last 12 months, man, one thing I've gotten to be is a little less selfish. My question is, can we honestly say that? Again, this is an area that we're intended to lean into the help of the Holy Spirit, where he calls us out on it, when he, where he nudges us appropriately based on how we're doing with this. I was thinking about this and I was like, well, how do we, how do, we do something tangible as a reminder or, or a nudge or a challenge in this area? This idea of, uh, of being more, doing this more and more brotherly love, extending uh, selfless love to others. I had a challenge I wanted to pass on to you and it's gonna involve your cell phone. And so I'm gonna ask you to pull this out for a second, pull out the phone. And I don't know what type of phone you have, but on my Apple, it's the one called Reminders. Each of you probably has something in there, something that you plug as a, as a reminder. And I wanted you to do something as a repeat event. I wanted you to type two words, expose selfishness two words, and set that as a morning reminder for the next week. Put that in the reminder. And when you see that, my ask for you is this, for you to ask the Holy Spirit, set it for 8 a.m. I have it set in my phone. It's asking if I want to undo the changes. No, nope, I want to stay with that. Uh, asking the Holy Spirit if there's something, an area of selfishness that he wants to reveal in your life that day. And you'll ask him to reveal it. And then when you see it, adjust. 
make tweaks. And so I think some of these things, if we're not careful, it just gets added to the just mile high pile of information for us to chew on and not actually do anything about. And so there's my challenge for you. I would absolutely love to hear how God pushes. So again, those two words, expose selfishness and see where the Holy Spirit directs you this week. I would love to see an email or two uh, from somebody saying how the Lord worked in that. That can be a, a challenge going into the week ahead. So work at love. It's not something that you stumble at, on. It's something that you actually have to be intentional about. The fourth one there, wanted to highlight Really the last big idea, verse 11 says, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. All right, we'll stop there. This probably needs a little bit of backstory. We don't learn all of the backstory here in this context. He's written a second letter, 2 Thessalonians, and we learn a little bit more about that in chapter 3, where he's realizing that some of the people, some of the new believers are, I, th I find this kind of cool, some of the new believers were so excited about the Lord's return that they kind of stopped taking care of, of daily responsibilities, kind of stopped working. They kind of stopped just saying, you know what? If he's returning, we just want to focus on uh, the community. We want to focus on getting the love of Jesus out. And they kind of quit on things like work and, <laughs> and important daily responsibilities. It's interesting that he's calling them out. He says a few things that they should be moving towards as dual citizens, ones that are in this world, but not of this world. So how do we operate in this world? What does he tell us? Basically three things. First one, you see it right there, to live quietly, to live quietly. Some of us are like, finally, somebody can tell my spouse to be quiet or my friend, I can tell him it's biblical. To the, the, the idea here of living quietly is not necessarily less exuberance, but more about drama-free living. Not getting caught up in every single kind of dramatic thing that we're surrounded with. I'll tell you what, this year has put those people to the greatest test. If you're prone to get pulled into drama, this past year has had plenty of opportunity, whether it's arguing about masks, whether it's about politics, or have you had the vaccine, are you, or, or not had the vaccine, all of the things that have potential to cause division, he's saying, live a quiet life. It doesn't mean that you can't have opinions on it, but here's the important piece of what I would suggest application-wise as that. In our exuberance, we have to resist lashing out in anger. It's easy to look at different circumstances present day and be like, man, I feel so strongly about this. It's also easy for us to go the, another route and start to create enemies out of people that were intended to reach with the love of Jesus Christ. So he's talking here about what's it look like to be a good citizen. The first thing that he calls us to is to live a quiet life. First to every once in a while when we sense our blood pressure rising to just take a deep breath and exhale and remind ourselves that God is in control. He's got this. There's nothing that falls outside of his hand. 
Next thing that he says, I'm just, I'm not coming up with these. I'm not creating my own list. You can see it right there. It says, and to mind your own affairs. Mind your own affairs. This is another solution to restlessness and anxiety is to focus, to bring your eyes back on yourself. I think this relates a lot to what Matthew 7, 3, what Jesus called us to when he says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. To bring ourselves back to looking at at our situation and first dealing with our own life and our own household before we start considering other people's situations. But this is a tricky one because we have to read this in the context of the rest of Scripture. When it says, mind your own affairs. So, You might, somebody might come to you, your child might say, mind your own business. I would hope they would never say that to a parent. But really the reality is there's certain things that are your business and different areas that we've been placed in leadership and areas of responsibility, whether it's parenting or spouse or or boss, there's some things that are your business. And so it is appropriate for you to have an eye on things and to be involved in things. This isn't an excuse for somebody to just sit in a corner and not engage. There's still definitely a place within the church for there to be a a challenging piece, for there to be encouraging, for there to be exhorting that takes place, but still a reminder for us to not get sucked into the drama and for as much as possible to mind our own business. The third one that you see in the section right out of the text is he challenges them to work with your hands. Do you see that there? Work with your hands as we instructed so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. When he's talking about working with your hands, I don't believe that this is a a demand for physical labor. That's just a a term for present day, uh, what we would use just for work in general. The idea here that he's pushing towards, as I already referred to, is some of them weren't actually taking care of some of their own responsibilities of providing for their family and working. And so he's saying what's maybe later reiterated in 2 Thessalonians, where he tells them, if you don't work, you won't eat. And the end goal is not to be dependent on others for your own provision. That's something that's really a tricky thing to wrestle through as there's more and more government involvement present day for us to not be pulled that direction. There should be a a personal responsibility. That's maybe a, a good dinner conversation for you to have as to what's an appropriate amount of dependence and what length of time should there be dependence on others when we have the ability to care for ourselves. So that's what he, he calls them to. All of these things are for us with one single intent. It's important that you catch this, this whole idea of being a good citizen. Verse 12 says, so that you may walk properly before outsiders. All of this is specific details for us to be, it's really evangelical in nature or evangelistic in nature. We're supposed to be live quiet lives, not in other people's business and, and working hard and keeping to ourselves for the design that we're to influence outsiders, recognizing that we're being watched, that the outside world notices after they've heard the message of the gospel, they want to see what it looks like played out. 
We don't want to be known for our combative nature. We don't want to be known as people that argue with everybody. We don't want to be known for infighting within the church. The church should be known for being set apart, for being good citizens, for growing in their love as it described there, for being sensitive to what is something that's going to be pleasing to God. We're supposed to carry that into every arena, especially as this last one points out, especially within the workplace. There's a businessman in our church that I'm good friends with, and it's kind of fun because he's getting to uh, retire here at the beginning of June. I was just talking to him a little bit about that, and he worked 32 years with the same company, actually a partial owner of this company. And as I was talking to him, he had a secular business partner that did a, t- took a moment to share the update with some of their clients and customers about his retirement that was kind of cool. And this is just a, one sentence out of the, what was said, a lot of really kind words, but it really grabbed my attention. This is what he said about him. He said, he is a man of incredible integrity, discipline, wisdom, and compassion. I have always known him to put clients' interests above his own. I was like, man, what a, a beautiful testimony where that's actually a picture Exactly of what we're talking about here. Living a life so that outsiders look in and say, wow, there's something different. Because really, when we break this all down, the whole reason that we're left here is one to the primary thing is to glorify God. But in glorifying God, we're pointing people to his son, to the rescue that's offered through Jesus Christ. And so all of these things should be running through our minds. Is this pleasing to God? Is this something that the world outside watching is not going to find offensive unless it's the gospel? We don't want to offend just for the sake of offending. All of these things should be things that are on our radar that we're eager to grow in because our time is so short. So that's my prayer for each of us this week. My application though, I do want you to try this out and I'd love, as I already mentioned, for you to send me an email, send me a note, letting me know how the Holy Spirit worked when you asked him to point out selfishness each day this week. It might get a little ugly, but I'm confident there might be some good on the other side of it. Let me just pray as we wrap up. Lord Jesus, we're just so thankful for this chance to gather around your word. And as I mentioned earlier, it is gathering around this word that you do the the work of change. And we submit to that, even as it relates to some of the tougher topics that are brought up, like selfishness or uh, sexual purity, things that are are, uh, deep and can be hard in our lives to get uh, victory over. God, we ask in the power of your Holy Spirit, that you'd identify some of these things, some of the obstacles that keep us from the sanctification, becoming more and more like yourself. We turn ourselves over to you even in this time now and ask, uh, even with this exercise of our phone response, that you would nudge us appropriately this week. We thank you for your patience. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit that allows us to see victory in any of these areas. We pray this now in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. is calm and all is right when i feel your favor flood my life even in the good i'll follow you even in the good i'll follow
follow you when the boat is tossed upon the waves when i wonder if you'll keep me safe even in the storms i'll follow you even in the storms i'll follow you believe and I will follow you. I believe and I will follow you. When I see the wicked prospering, when I feel I have no voice to sing, even in the want I'll follow you. Even in the want I'll Heart. I believe and I will follow you. I believe and I will follow you. When I find myself so far from home, and you lead me somewhere that I don't want to go, even in my death, I'll follow you. Even in my death, I'll follow you. And when I come to win this race, I run. And I receive the prize that Christ has won. I will be with you in paradise. I will be with you. I believe and I will follow you. I believe and I will follow you. Oh, and I believe everything that you say you are. And I believe and I have seen your unchanging heart in the good things and in the hardest part. I believe and I will follow you. I believe and I will follow you. I believe and I will follow you. All right, church. Well, thanks again for being with us online. I will follow. That's the challenge so appropriate for our message today and really the call that each of us has in our life. I pray that we get opportunities left and right to live out what was taught this week. God bless you. Have an amazing day.